Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Nearly Dead in North Dakota, written by Joshua McRae. This is a story about a man, his son, and their three-day mission to cheat death. Sometimes funny, often sardonic, with shifting perspectives and unpunctuated dialogue, Nearly Dead in North Dakota is a fast and loose journey through history, science, religion, pop culture, and a closer examination of the kind of world we live in but never got enough time to really think about. It gets better every time you listen to it, and it's the kind of book you have to buy over and over again because you keep lending it out to people and then feel awkward about asking for it back. That's totally okay and not a personality flaw at all. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Nearly Dead in North Dakota. Chapter 1 Once upon a time, there was a man who wanted to live forever. But he was given only two weeks to live. He wanted to live forever, but not like mythical gods or sparkling vampires. That's too much responsibility, too much pain and suffering. The man was much more interested in an average Joe kind of immortality. He didn't want to slay dragons. He just wanted mornings to be a little easier. He wanted to avoid the existential dread as he waddled between the toilet and the bathroom scale. To stand in the shower and clean his butthole without imagining all the empty seats at his memorial service. He wanted to be able to bounce out of bed. Maybe even maintain a cheerful ambivalence until the coffee kicked in. How does everyone else deal with mortality? Like, do they get anxious? Do they panic? Or do most people just not care? Maybe for some, it's easy to attach meaninglessness to everything we do and everyone we interact with. We are born, we live, we die. Compared to the universe at large, we are as significant as a burst of light from a matchstick. But thinking about it can be super depressing, especially when your calendar ends in a fortnight. Yet even in the darkest halls of the deepest depressions, People still look for a place to charge their cell phones. There's always hope, or at least there's always anticipation. The tyranny of time is absolute and unrelenting, but it can be dismissed if we don't think about it. The man, however, was given only two weeks to live, which is a lot to think about. When you're given only two weeks to live, it's nearly impossible to think about anything else, and it doesn't seem like much of a gift. More like a supersized takeaway, but we'll get to that later. Living forever shouldn't be that difficult. Shouldn't be impossible. Science just needs to catch up. Looking through a microscope in 1665, a man named Robert Hooke made an astonishing discovery. It turns out that big things are made of little things. It had been guessed at before, but never actually seen. The little things he saw through that microscope reminded him of the living quarters of monks, so he called those little things cells. He had no idea what they were or what they did, but it was a start. It was Karl Heinrich Braun who pushed the science forward and discovered the purpose for those tiny cells. He called them the basic unit of life. That was 1845. We've learned more since. We've learned that cells go through three separate phases, interphase, mitotic, and cytogenetic. 
which is a very stuffy way of saying growth, reproduction, and suicide. It's pretty simple. Cells get big and strong. They make new cells. And then much like your smartphone, they implode just in time for the new version to hit the market. Now, of course, sometimes they do revolt. They'll hit the mitotic phase and think to themselves, screw cytogenesis. I'm going to crack open a cold beer and concentrate on reproduction. You certainly can't blame the little things. However, we humans have a very specific word when it comes to those rebellious cells. We call them cancer. And while we applaud their libertarian spirit and their devil-may-care virility, they may very well be the death of us. It seems as though the key for human immortality is learning how to hasten the death of the tiny things we are made of. So it's actually a healthy thing that your cells are programmed to self-destruct. In fact, assuming that you bathe regularly and are not some fourth-dimensional being where the laws of thermodynamics don't apply, there's a pretty good chance you contain none of the same cells you did just a few years ago. Shouldn't that mean as long as you eat well and exercise, you can live forever? Compared to the person you were a decade ago, you are an entirely shiny new you. Except not totally. No cell splits perfectly. There's always a tiny variation. Like, imagine you're an 80s pop song. You were mixed, mastered, cut into vinyl grooves, and shipped out in mint condition. You are a hit, and played over the radio for everyone to hear. Then, you're copied onto cassette, listened to, then copied again and again, but each time losing a little more fidelity and until there's not much left of you but a bit of snare drum and a crackling hiss. Eventually, the tape wears out. We are all going to die an analog death. Maybe there will come a day when we become digitized and our entire universe sits on a thumb drive with a complete collection of Grateful Dead bootlegs. But as I said, science needs to catch up. The man didn't want to die, but that can be said of anyone. The difference is, while most people spend a large chunk of their lives trying not to think about it, the man thought about it a lot. Like, a lot, a lot. But somewhere in the middle of his middle youth, he was introduced to Saturday nights, cars, girls, cigarettes, pot, Nietzsche and punk rock, fatalism and recklessness, bonfires on the beach, rowling until there's nothing left but a burnt-out broken corpse. Yet it only takes a few years of Saturday nights and waking up Sunday mornings, cold, alone, mouth all full of fuzz, an empty wallet and a missing pair of sunglasses. Sunday mornings are no place for a young boy who thinks about death a lot. It didn't take the young boy very long to become a young man. A few Sunday mornings were enough. He set his mind on the mastery of a few skills, food in the fridge, and a very pretty girl who turns into a vivacious young bride who turns into a partner of everything but crime. A son is born. Sleep is forgotten and eventually rediscovered. Work isn't really all that bad. There were long periods of time when the man didn't bother thinking about death at all. Like at all at all. He was just too busy living a life. Of course, 
Thoughts would creep up on him those nights when he couldn't sleep or when he had too much to drink or while standing at a grocery store checkout line behind an old lady writing a check. But those moments were few and far between and rarely, if ever, made it until the next day. At some point, he had replaced the desire to live forever and settled upon some good old-fashioned immortality. Not the immortality of gods and monsters again, but the immortality of writers and musicians and the guy who invented the zipper. He would learn to make things, and those things would live forever with his name stenciled inside. Or he could learn how to do things and teach those things to his children and teach those children how to teach their own children or students or whatever. Blah, blah, blah. So he wrote songs. He played music. He wrote stories and read them out loud. He gave as much love as there was of his to share, and he taught his son how to chew with his mouth closed. Trying to live forever is ridiculous, but immortality is certainly achievable in small bits. On the morning the man was given two weeks to live, he wasn't thinking about immortality at all. He was thinking about the leftover cheesecake in the fridge and how good it would taste with his second cup of coffee. He was also thinking about how his wife wouldn't be upset by his cheesecake breakfast. She liked him a little soft around the middle, and she didn't like cheesecake, which meant he didn't have to worry about sharing. It was cheesecake and not death that the man was thinking about when the boy cleared his throat and asked a question. Wait, Dad? Yeah? What's easier, driving a manual or an automatic? This was the boy's most favorite question in the world. It came up every six or seven days and had done so for years. It didn't matter if the answer was short and curt, or if the man gave a long and very technical lecture about gear ratios and body mechanics and muscle memory. The only answer the boy wouldn't take was silence. Dad? Uh-huh. Which is it? Which is what? Which do you think is easier? What do you think? I don't know. What did I say the last time? Manual. And what did I say the time before that? Manual. What have I said every time? Manual, but I don't think manual is easier. Okay. It looks harder. Well, okay. Maybe it looks harder. And maybe it's harder to learn. And maybe it's a bit more tedious while driving in traffic and kind of scary when you're on a hill, but... The simple fact is that it's easier to control the car with a manual transmission. Controlling the car is driving. But seriously, you don't have to worry about all that because you're nine years old. And you're going to live almost your entire life over again before it's even going to matter. Dad? Hmm. I still think automatic is easier. Okay. At this point, it was murder and not death or cheesecake crossing the man's mind. He rolled up the volume on the radio, which was his way of saying that chat time was over. Hopefully, the boy would get lost in his own thoughts for a while, while the man listened to sports analysis he only sort of cared about. The man pulled the car into a quaint little side street just around the corner from the boy's elementary school, 
and left the engine running. Get out of my car. Aren't you going to walk me to class? I think you can make it. But, but, but... Out. But what if I die? You're not going to die. What if I'm kidnapped? No one would want you. But what if I'm hit by a bus? Then your mother and I will split the insurance money, and I won't have to make any more jelly sandwiches, and I can put the Xbox in my room and give all your toys to the kid down the street. You wouldn't. Try me. The boy stood on the sidewalk with the car door open. He said nothing for a long time. No one could feign incredulousness quite as well as the boy could. He was going to have to make the journey all on his own. He slammed the car door shut and barreled his way across the street. The boy didn't bother looking both ways. The man pursed his lips and made a mental note to talk to the boy about that later. That's how you get hit by a boss, the man thought. How did I not teach him to look both ways before crossing the street? He's so much smarter than that. It's really kind of embarrassing. He's so skinny, the man thought, as the boy walked down the street. That backpack is too heavy for him. One decent-sized gust of wind is likely to throw him on the ground. How long would he lay there like a giant tortoise who had been rolled in his shell? How long would his arms and legs uselessly wiggle at the sky before someone, a good Samaritan perhaps, someone kind enough to flip him over would come along? And if no one came along, how long would it take before panic started to set in and the useless wiggle became a frantic flailing? And how long after that, when his energy was all but spent, would he resign to his fate? To bake like a little boy pot pie in the heat of the sun. How long before he remembers that I told him to leave that useless ten-pound math book in his desk and he has that moment of regret? The difference between life and death can be as simple as listening to your dad. But no such wind came along, and the boy made it safely to class. He got lucky, the man thought. This time. It had been a new thing, this not walking the boy to his classroom every morning, and the boy was never happy with new things. I mean, toys, yes, clothes, whatever, but a new way of doing things, changes in procedure, well, those are just unacceptable. It was unacceptable on the first day, the second day, and the third day. By the fourth day, it was merely unreasonable, and by the fifth day, the crying had stopped. Eventually, they had gotten to this day, the thirteenth day. So not being walked to class was just a conceptual annoyance. Being annoyed is probably the reason why the boy had not bothered to look both ways before crossing the street. The man could make the boy cross the street alone, but he wasn't going to get the boy to play responsibly. There was a penance to pay. Hail Mary, full of grace. If it's penance, the man thought, so be it. It's the price of being responsible for a creature with opposable thumbs. In truth, though, this whole not walking the boy to class wasn't really about parenting. It wasn't about tough love or taking baby steps to mitigate separation anxiety. And it certainly wasn't about the weather. It was barely cold enough for a jacket. And they were weeks away before socks had to be worn.
The reason for not walking the boy to class could have been about vanity. The man rarely showered before taking the boy to school. He was usually dressed in yesterday's clothes, and there seemed to be an awful lot of pretty young moms filling the sidewalks. Not that he had any intention of flirting with them. Them with their frantic day planning and gym memberships and sport utility vehicles that were way too big for them. But he could feel just a hint of scorn from them, a slight distaste for a man who doesn't wear a tie or drive a car with heated seats. It's true he might have been projecting, but he had yet to receive a single book club invite. Anyway, the real, real reason the man stopped walking his son to school was because the man wasn't feeling too good. He hadn't been feeling too good for a good while. He couldn't remember when the pain started, only that it wasn't something to worry about. It was just uncomfortable. Then, sort of painful. Then pretty painful. Then moments of sheer agony, but, you know, nothing to worry about. It hurt to get out of bed. It, it hurt to stand. It hurt to lean. It hurt to bend over and pick things up. And it most certainly hurt to get out of the car, walk 30 feet to the school, shuffle back, and then squeeze himself into the driver's seat again. Drugs helped, kind of, sort of. They're like earplugs in a monster truck rally. Everything is still screaming pretty loud, but you don't want to know what it's like without them. Recommended daily doses of such things were doubled and sometimes tripled, but it wasn't something to worry about, and the boy was old enough to walk himself to class. However, the man couldn't shrug off the pain forever. It's anybody's guess how long he refused, how long it took to break down the facade of masculinity, but it became pretty obvious that it was something to worry about. He was going to have to see somebody. Not just anybody. He was going to have to see a doctor. The man was not overly fond of doctors. Not a single one of them had ever done him wrong, but he suspected it was for lack of trying. He didn't trust anyone who had the mental and emotional capacity to do what doctors do and still decide to do what doctors do. He also didn't feel comfortable around anyone who worked 18 hours a day. How can you tell what stage they're at during your visit? What if you get them in the first hour before their coffee kicks in? The man himself was a verifiable monster for the first hour after waking up. He couldn't imagine wielding anything sharper than a butter knife without shedding blood. Or what if you get the doctor who has been running 15 hours straight and hasn't had lunch yet? What if you get them after a nap? The man himself was terrible after naps. What might a doctor be like? Considering this, the man wondered if it would be feasible to adjust your health bills based upon which hour you choose to visit. Like, if you want the doctor at his peak, right in the middle of the fourth hour, it's gonna cost you. But, if you're willing to be examined by the resident doctor on his or her 17th hour, it'll be a zero copay and you get some jello from the cafeteria. No spork, though. Sporks stop coming after hour nine. You're going to have to eat that jello with your dirty little fingers. That's how capitalism works. The man nodded his head at the idea. It was a neat incentive program. Doctors make more by working less. Poor people have options. And rich people get to feel special. That's like 
win sort of win win right there. It could be a revolution in modern medical practice, but even if there was someone to take such a modest proposal seriously, it would never be enacted in our lifetime. If there is anyone who hates changes in procedure more than the boy, it's doctors. Think about it. Did you know that medicine actually predates science? Brain surgery was conducted before the word hypothesis was invented. Medical practices still work the same way they did before the Bronze Age. If a procedure is only sort of mildly successful, but is adopted by the clan's witch doctor, it could become common practice not just for years, but for centuries. It's a system that went directly from Hippocrates to Viagra and pretty much skipped the whole Age of Enlightenment. Think about it. In contrast, let's say a new microchip is invented. If it's smaller, faster, and less expensive, it'll be available before Christmas. However, if a new medical procedure gets invented and it is cheaper, faster, and could save hundreds of lives, you're probably not going to see it become common for generations. Don't believe me. If you were born in the 20th century, there's a good chance someone you know went to a doctor who never considered washing his hands before surgery. We split the atom before antibacterial soap became a thing. And if you were lucky enough to be born in the 21st century, guess what? You actually get to visit the first generation of doctors who have to take a nutrition class. Facebook had over a billion users before doctors could agree that nutrition might have an impact on your health. That being said, the man didn't hate doctors. His extended circle of loved ones was filled with doctors and nurses and healers, and when a glass of wine was involved, they were absolutely delightful. He even got over his prejudice toward people who unapologetically wear scrubs in public. Scrubs are goofy-looking, and it's hard to imagine that they haven't come in contact with every single bodily fluid imaginable. But they are damn comfortable, and that makes all the difference. What he really hated was being a patient. The smell of sterility, the slightly sticky feel to the furniture, the thin, overly washed texture of the fabrics, the crackle of the butcher paper they drape over examination chairs. And if you look closely at the baseboards, you'll see a thin, dark line about two inches from the floor. You know what that line is? It's where the top of the mop scrapes along the wall. It's decades of dirty mop water. Though, to be fair, you'll see the exact same thing in any establishment where the floors are mopped frequently. But once you see it, you can't unsee it. The man hated how long they left you alone in those examination spaces, the rooms with hepatitis pamphlets, plastic models of vertebrae, and drawings of genitalia next to thank-you cards written by five-year-olds. They leave you there alone for a long, long time. And it's not because they're inefficient or cruel. It's because while you may be in the most extreme distress you've ever experienced in your life, your pain doesn't even make the top ten on their emergency to-do list. But despite the man's lack of enthusiasm for being a patient and hospitals in general, he had to go because his wife told him to.
Whatever negativity sharpened the hairs on the back of his neck with the very thought of being left alone in one of those rooms, however much he hated sitting there naked and chilly, he was, in fact, super fond of his wife. She was smarter than he was, which makes it easy to listen to the things she says and easy to do the things she tells him to do. He was also rather super fond of sex, especially with her, and the chances of such encounters increased dramatically when he listened to the things she said and did the things she told him to do. It was all about the math. She was lovely to look at, nice to listen to. She spent a lot of time on her hair and makeup, but only to get as natural a look as possible. So he didn't bother put up much of a fight when she told him he needed to go see a doctor. All it would take was a phone call, a few hours on a Friday morning. He felt he could very reasonably set aside a few hours on a Friday morning, but very much like his feelings toward being a patient. He wasn't overly fond of telephones. To be more precise, he absolutely hated talking on the phone. He couldn't pinpoint an exact reason for his discomfort with phone calls, probably some weird episode from his youth, a cold call gone wrong, a time when he poured his heart out to the girl he had a crush on, only to find out that her dad was on the line. Once, he spent an hour talking to his grandma before he realized he had dialed a wrong number. He had been talking to a stranger. The stranger had been talking to him. Creepy. It could also be the back echo messing with his equilibrium. Whatever it was, he really hated talking on the phone. His shoulders would rise and his spine would curve the minute he heard the ring. He would pick up the phone and his voice would leap an octave higher and he would shout loudly into the receiver. And he would pace. Oh goodness how he would pace about the house, doing circles around the kitchen island, making pit stops in and out of bathrooms, up and down halls. He would laugh really loud and speak very quickly and wave his right hand back and forth and up and down as if conducting a symphony orchestra. It's weird, but other than that, the man was perfectly normal. The doctor he was going to see, the one who was just about to give him two weeks to live, was also perfectly normal. It was 10 a.m., but the doctor was already on his 13th hour, and both the caffeine and the guilty conscience were making him twitchy and distracted. Caffeine and a guilty conscience would make any perfectly normal person twitchy and distracted. The caffeine in the doctor's system came from an energy drink. He knew it wasn't very good for him. It wasn't good for him because it was filled with sugar. It contained none of the natural pick-me-ups like vitamin C or B6 or B12. No, this energy drink was the real stuff. The stuff with chemicals that hadn't existed the last time he took a chemistry class. Sure, he was absolutely an advocate for healthy living, clean diet, exercise, green tea and organic foods, and plenty of water and all that. But not for himself, and especially not for himself on hour 13, with a distracted heart full of guilt. Despite the less-than-ideal beverage, he was rather proud of himself. He was proud of himself for sticking with his gas station energy drink rather than doing what a lot of his colleagues do during the 13th hour, which is to raid the pharmaceutical room of which he had the key and plenty of reasonable reasons to raid. 
At least the energy drinks weren't addictive, he assured himself. He had taken classes in medical school on the best ways to make people feel assured, and he felt he was reasonably good at it, he assured himself. The reason a guilty conscience was making him twitchy and distracted was because he was having an affair with a sales representative from one of the medical machine companies. She was very tall and very blonde and very reassuring. And he didn't feel bad about the affair at all. He wasn't happy with his current marriage. His wife wasn't happy with her current marriage. And they only stayed together because of what happens when two people tell each other the truth. It's awkward to say the least. Not feeling bad about the affair was one thing. Feeling bad about being caught is another. Earlier that day, around the sixth hour of his shift, his cell phone bleeped with a text message. And he realized the text was from himself. He also realized the only way to be receiving a text from himself was if he had grabbed the wrong phone on his way out the door in the wee hours of the night. This meant his wife had his phone, along with all the dirty text strings between himself and the very tall, very blonde, very reassuring medical machine representative. His wife had probably found the text strings because they were the only text strings on his phone, and wives get curious. That's not a bad thing. We all get curious. The text he received from himself was plain and simple, and not dirty at all. It just said, We need to talk. The cat was out of the bag. He knew the ensuing months were not going to be happy ones, for anyone. There was going to be a lot of yelling and name-calling and finger-pointing. And when the wave of blame and disappointment washed away, there was going to be the inevitable divvying up of stuff. Clothes were easy. Photographs and CDs and books and movies and expensive bottles of wine were a bit more complex. He was sure she would want the children, which was fine. He was pretty sure they didn't like him very much. He was also sure she was going to want the dog, because he loved that dog. And taking the dog away from him would be the surest way of hurting him, the way she was probably hurting now. The money was superfluous. The first thing life tries to teach you is how important money is. And then, once you've sacrificed everything for it, life turns around and teaches you how little you were able to buy. All he really wanted now was a place to be quiet, a reassuring medical machine representative who laughed at his jokes, and a dog that would wag its tail and be excited to see him when he got home from a long day at the hospital. It was Friday morning just after 10 a.m. when the doctor told the man he had only about two weeks to live. The doctor then made a note to himself to stop by the pound on his way home. I'm sorry, what? Two weeks. I'm sorry, that still doesn't make any sense. It is an aggressive spinal deterioration. The nerve damage is extensive. And had we cut it earlier, I'm not sure that there's much more we could have done. Do you have anyone with you? Is there anyone you would like us to call? No, I'm sorry, it, it's too sudden. It can't be right. 
Would you like me to go over the details again? No, I just don't understand. Two weeks? It's just a statistical approximation. Would you like me to go over it again? No, 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 I just thought... Well, I just thought this was all going to be nothing. Like, you know, like here's a diagram, here's a bottle of pills. Don't operate any heavy machinery. Don't eat after midnight, that sort of thing. I understand you were in shock. You sure there isn't anyone you would like us to call? No, no, no not just yet. Okay, right, so, so what happens next? Well, as it progresses, the pain will increase. Your motor skills will decrease. You will start to lose feeling in your extremities. Fingers, toes, arms, legs. Neurochemical messages will slow down between your brain and your body. Eventually, your heart and lungs will stop. And that'll be that? I'm afraid. Yes. We can give you some medication for the pain and help set up a satellite infirmary in your home so you can be with your loved ones. Or, if you prefer to stay here, we will do everything we can to make things as comfortable as possible. I know it's not much, but you'll have a week or at least a few days of feeling the way you do now to do whatever you feel you would like to do. Though, I do suggest you don't drive. Are you sure there isn't anyone we can call? Not right now. Are you sure? I am comfortable with my diagnosis. So, there's not much chance I'm going to get a phone call in a few days saying there's been a mix-up. I'm afraid not. I'm not going to get a message on my phone with you going, guess what, I got some good news for you. Very unlikely. But not impossible? I'm really very sorry. Is there someone you can call? I'm not overly fond of the phone. I understand. As the man left the office, the doctor considered reaching down into his desk drawer to pour himself a drink from the bottle of Irish whiskey hidden underneath some notepads and a clean pair of scrubs. Being present for the worst moment of a person's life doesn't come easily, especially when a caffeine drink and a guilty conscience have made you twitchy and distracted. This was a bad day for everyone, and it wasn't going to get better from here. A little shot of whiskey sounded as comforting as a cigarette, or a reassuring foot rub from a tall medical machine rep, or even the wagging tail of that dog he was going to mess. But the doctor looked up at the clock and saw that he had maybe three or four hours left on his shift, and whiskey would be a very bad choice. The doctor realized he had a lot of choices ahead of him. Little ones like whether or not to have a cookie when he went on break, and great big ones like whether or not he really wanted to be a doctor anymore. He wasn't suffering a midlife crisis. He had gotten to where he was by being pragmatic, by being unmoved by even his own emotions. But he was made up of human stuff and feelings and such, and he realized he'd been criminally distracted while talking to the man. And he knew he could have been more reassuring. 
He had taken classes in it. A distracted doctor can be just as harmful as one who is exhausted or is high on pills pilfered from the pharmacy or tipsy from a drink on an empty stomach. With that in mind, it was time to face the inevitable. He picked up the phone from the edge of his desk and began to dial. Hi, honey. I got your text. What's up? We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Nearly Dead in North Dakota. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.